Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa I was asked to find a, a talk that I can share with you and I had the many experienced people here for the last 20 years, and also uh, new people. And in between, I said, wow, what can I do? <laughs> what can I share with you? <laughs> then something came to my mind. I said, I'm going to share uh, a topic about the path to inner freedom, because you want to be free. Who doesn't want to be free? And also, uh, I said, we are going to use the tool of that path to, freedom, to inner freedom as cultivating skillful thoughts. Because I was under the impression that everyone think here, whether you experience meditator or you are part-time meditator, season meditator, we all think. Who doesn't think? <laughs> Sometimes quite a lot. <laughs> Sometimes uh, it's like uh, this obsession of thinking, like a compulsive obsession thinking syndrome. <laughs> I came up with that word. <laughs> I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> right, so whatever level of experience, I think you are going to uh, find out that uh, this is uh, for you, actually. Myself, I, want, I, I love thinking, actually. I spend most of my time thinking. But the freedom is the Buddha gave us how to sort out our thoughts, not to be carried away with our thoughts. Actually, the difference between being caught up in thoughts and being free is to understand the thoughts, the, your thoughts. And the Buddha used the words skillful and unskillful. They are skillful thoughts and unskillful thoughts. He didn't say good or bad, because good from whose point of view? Is it my point of view? There's relativity there, good or bad. But skillful, oh, there's a dividing, a dividing line there. So something is universal. If something is skillful here, it's going to be skillful in Uganda, in India, wherever. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> if it's unskillful, it's the same. It's like touching fire in the United States. It's unskillful. When you go to Uganda, you touch it, it's unskillful. It burns you, then it's inconvenience. People have to take you to the hospital, and <laughs> then doctors have to work very hard. <laughs> But something good here, it may not be good in India. It's, there's some relativity there. So it's very, very important to understand this word skillful and what's unskillful. Me, I was using it just loosely. Oh, this is skillful. I didn't know what it really meant. So the first thing that you want to know is to divide the, your thoughts between skillful and unskillful. And that's what the Buddha did actually at the eve of his enlightenment. He divided his thoughts between skillful and unskillful. And when he found out these thoughts are skillful, he continued thinking about them. When unskillful, just let go. As simple as that. And that's what we call right understanding. But I, I don't want so much to use the word right. People will always question, who said it's right? I'm just going to use skillful understanding. Then, what is skillful? If something is bring happiness to yourself, happiness to others, happiness to both, then it's skillful. If uh, something which is unskillful, it's bring suffering to yourself, to, and uh, it brings suffering to others and both. So if you come to that area, to that age, where you can see for yourself that, okay, I'm thinking like this, am I happy or unhappy? Then you can actually see for yourself, not from even books, not from somebody who's higher or external powers, no, no, from yourself you can see. 
And that's an invitation to see for yourself. One time I went to India, and then I was so uh, inspired by the Dharma, by meeting monks and all that. So this inspiration took me all the way to Tibet. I reached the airport. They have never seen an, uh, an African, a black person there. That was very evident because uh, <laughs> at, at, at the airport, they looked in the system. There was no Uganda. I said, wow. <laughs> I haven't even entered the country. <laughs> so I knew what I was getting into, actually. <laughs> Say, wow, you mean you don't have a Ugandan computer? <laughs> Say, okay, yeah, we have South Africa. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let me in. <laughs> so I entered there and uh, reached there. And uh, I, I visited monasteries. I spent one month and a half in, in Tibet, Potala, visiting Potala Palace and all these high lamas. But something happened to me uh, that was a bit strange. When I visited some monastery, people were looking at me. They were fearing me. So what? Then I started asking, what do, what do they think about me? I was very curious because some, and most of them, they were lay people. But monks, uh, when I, um, wherever I met monks, it's as if we have seen each other for a long, long time. But when I was meeting some people, they were always looking at me like in a weird way. Then when I looked in the temple, they had the mural paintings. There was a black painting of uh, their demon, uh, like he's a protector with the white teeth sticking out and nails sticking out. And for me, out of my love for uh, the Tibetan and uh, Dhamma and all that, so whenever they were fearing, I just laughed. And whenever I laughed, I proved like I'm like a demon here. Demon. <laughs> Then I, I tried to hold on to Lord. <laughs> it's just amazing what thought can do to us, you know. The thought I've fallen from heaven and just dropped there. And, uh, and for me, I didn't take it personally. So I, just, I was enjoying it, actually. But I was wishing them loving, kindness thoughts all the time. May you be free from fear. Something like that. And it happened recently in Uganda. Uh, I established Buddhism in Uganda in 2005 and built a temple there. And then I, I had news that they broke into our temple. I said, why do they break into a temple? Uganda Buddhist Center is not a rich temple. We don't have anything very valuable there. When I went to Uganda, they told me that the reason why people break, broke into the temple, they thought there was a baby there. Because I got a Buddha statue from Sri Lanka, it has lipsticks and all that. So people thought there's a baby, a Buddha statue is a baby. And that was from thoughts. You see how thoughts can really uh, lead us to bondage. And these people who broke into the temple, actually, they were not ordinary people. They were people from, um, the, uh, like, Ame people, because uh, our temple is near the vice president. So the president came to visit. So I'm the forces came before he arrived and then surveyed around and rumors were going on a village that Uganda Buddhist Center has a, a baby there. They don't allow the baby to go out. <laughs> <laughs> and then when they didn't find a baby, of course, they just sat down and took beers and then the next day they left. So that comes from thoughts. So <laughs> we should know how to really manage our thoughts. So the Buddha now gives us a difference. What is skillful thoughts? Thoughts of generosity, thought of loving kindness, thought of compassion. Those are the thoughts which are skillful. Thoughts of, uh, of which are unskillful, they are thoughts of self-centered desire. Self-centered. You should mark that word. Because there's a tendency of people say, oh, Buddhists, they teach about letting go desire. How can I do my degree? How can I uh, feed my children? How can I get a good education? It's only those unselfish desires that lead to bondage, no freedom, that we should let go. Of course, we have what we call in Pali Chanda. Chanda means uh, wish to do. We wish to do something. There's no problem. There's also Dhamma Chanda. That means a desire to practice Dhamma. Like you coming here, there's some kind of desire, which is awesome, which is skillful. 
So we should continue to cultivate that. So it's very, very important to know the difference, different degrees of desire, desire which is unskillful, desire which is skillful, and desire which is neutral, like wish to do. Like when you stand up, you wish to stand up. So that's the, it's, you have to. <laughs> Otherwise, you won't stand up. You'll stay here. It will be good for Spirit Rock if you stay here. <laughs> but you have to have that intention to stand up. It's very important. <laughs> so Buddhism doesn't say, oh, let go that desire to stand up. No, it's self-centered desire that's really not skillful for you. It's, it's really leading to bondage. So to really uh, make sure that you practice, not just thinking only, but we have to practice it. So we have to practice generosity. It's very practical, not only thinking about it. Letting go, that's generosity. You have practiced generosity by coming here because you had to let go something. Maybe seeing a movie or going to Uncle, Uncle Sam's party, whatever you are going to do this evening. You had to practice this. So I'm so happy that you're already practicing skillful thoughts. You had to let go something. In economics, they, in economics, they used to call it opportunity cost. Every time you do something, you have to let go something else, you know, in order to come here. So I'm very glad for you that you are really practicing skillful thoughts. Thoughts of generosity. Thoughts of loving kindness. Same. It's skillful. Thoughts of compassion. It's the same. In this your time, what I would like to remind the new people, that if we divide our thoughts, the problem is actually not uh, thinking, is what we think and how we think. Are we just always thinking about garbage? <laughs> you know, or we are thinking something that is really giving us energy, you know, like thoughts that are draining us. Our own thoughts, you know, they are the ones which really keep us like, really, really unhappy. America has given over millions and millions of dollars to search why people are unhappy, and they have come up with something interesting. That book is called The How of Happiness. They found out that something that really keeps us unhappy in that book, I think uh, it was Department of Mental Health that gave this grant to somebody from... Uh, Stanford University. Okay, the book is there. You can get the book. <laughs> but number one reason why people are unhappy, overthinking. Overthinking. I mean, they wouldn't, if they came to maybe Jack, they would not spend all that money. They would, <laughs> Jack would tell them they don't have to spend <laughs> all that money to find out why people are unhappy. <laughs> That's a lot of money. <laughs> Somebody knew this 2,500 years ago. Okay, another reason <laughs> why people are unhappy is comparing. Compa comparing ourselves with other people. Many, many reasons. Today, I flew by um, Virgin America. For the first time, I tend to travel a lot. <laughs> For the first time, to find an in-flight magazine. They were talking about plane and simple yoga. So they described the yoga you can do in, a, in an aeroplane. And something here they say meditation. I say, but just seeing the word meditation, I say, wow, America. <laughs> I'm so happy. <laughs> Actually, not so many people know about this word meditation. My fellow African from Ethiopia, I was training as a monk in San Jose. I told them I'm doing meditation. Oh, medication? I said, no, 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 I'm doing meditation. He said, oh, medication, sorry, sorry. I said, why are you sorry? I said, third time I said meditation, they, they didn't register it. I said, okay. <laughs> many, many people don't know even the word meditation. <laughs> Leave alone meditating. So it's, I didn't know myself, actually. <laughs> so they say it's here, uh, the best technique for quietening the mind for meditation is focusing all of your thoughts on your breathing. Mm, quite something. <laughs> Somebody <knew> that. <laughs> Allow your eyes to relax 
and you inhale and mentally repeat, I'm breathing in. Don't do it too lo- loudly. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> People will get be offended. They will ask, who's not breathing? <laughs> it continues saying that as you exhale, mentally repeat, I'm breathing out. <laughs> What's special about breathing out and in? <laughs> okay. The mind naturally wanders. Yeah, that's great. Keep focusing on breathing to stay relaxed and centered. Wow. I can give a big, big clap for um, the CEO for this airplane. Virgin, Virgin America. <laughs> Friend, you have read so much about what I thought, but I, I want to tell you exactly in just a minute I have to, or to what I do every time I wake up. Because I saw this being that inspired me on a path. Really, really the Dalai Lama. This is what I do. I put this in front of my, my, my bed, my kuti, in front. Uh, this is what I say every time I wake up. If I don't have this paper, I, I know this very well. But let me read it right here. A precious human life. That's the, the, the heading. Every day, think as you wake up. Today, I am fortunate to have... A, to have waken up. I am alive. I have a precious human life. I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to use all my energies to develop myself, to expand my heart out to others, to achieve enlightenment for all, for, for the benefit of all beings. I'm going to have kind thoughts towards others. I'm not going to get angry or think badly about others, I'm going to benefit others as much as possible. I'm telling you, if we cultivate these thoughts, benefiting others is, of course, generous and all that, loving kindness and compassion. When this, during that time, always this message will appear to you. Friends, that's what I can do in a short time. May you always cultivate skillful thoughts for your inner freedom. It works. It works for me. I don't know if it works for you. But whenever there's opportunities for getting a little bit uptight and angry, and, oh, I remember, oh, wow, I should cultivate skillful thoughts because they bring a lot of energy. Thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you, Bhante, very much. Um, it makes me happy to listen to you. It really does. My thoughts get happier. (laughs) Yeah, I think that... um, Let me kind of um, piggyback or elaborate on some of the things that you touched on, and then perhaps we can take some questions or dialogue. Um, My own experience, and I think that of almost anyone who meditates, is that you first encounter the uncontrolled mind. Um, in uh, one text, the, the Buddha asks, who is your enemy? Mind is your enemy. Who is your friend? Mind is your friend. No one can harm you more than your own thoughts, unguarded or misunderstood. Not even the worst enemy. And no one can help you, not your closest friend or your loving family, more than your own wise thoughts. Um, But there I was, Bhante, I was in the forest monastery um, practicing as a monk uh, in Thailand. And because I'd worked on medical teams in the Mekong River Valley in the Peace Corps for a couple of years, doing tropical medicine of working on teams working with malaria and typhoid and leprosy, um, I was starting to meditate And after some weeks of trying to quiet my mind, which was not very easy, and and come into my body, I began to notice that I had um, places that I couldn't feel on my skin, parts of my body. And I thought, well, this is weird, you know. And, okay, I'll meditate more. And then the thought came into my mind, oh, 
you know, one of the first signs of leprosy <laughs> is numbness on parts of your skin. I mean, I've been working in these... Uh, and um, I was working in these community of people, you know, who had leprosy, and I must have contracted it, and now... I, and my mind just went crazy, I'll tell you. Uh, okay, I have leprosy. What am I gonna, I'm going to call my mother and say, I'm sorry, your son is a leper. He won't be coming home. He's got to find a leper colony, you know, and the rest of his life and so forth. And all the, all the attendant fear and feelings and all of these things for a few days. Um, and then I got the nerve to talk to one of the senior elder monks there, and I went up, and I didn't ask directly about that because that was embarrassing. So, uh, okay. I said, tell me, um, do you ever have times when you meditate and you can't feel parts of your body so much? He said, oh, of course, you know, um, parts of the body are, will appear, the body can dissolve, sometimes there's more sensation, sometimes it's, you're not awake to that, it's really quite normal. And I went, oh, whew, thank you, it's normal, I don't have leprosy. For three days, I was crazed. I was a little, and it's interesting because the, these last weeks, as I said last Monday, I've had these strange variety of symptoms of dizziness and tremors and um, brushes of um, heat and numbness in my body. And I've had all these tests, a gazillion tests, and th- which they haven't found anything, which is a good thing. They, oh no, it's not Parkinson's and it's not MS. And so they haven't found anything, which I'm very happy about. But what that means is that they don't know. Right? So, <laughs> so either my mind can go and do the leprosy thing. You know how your mind does that, right? Or I can say, oh, that's just thinking. Now I've learned. Oh, that's just fantasy. That's just thinking. And bow to it. Say, thank you for your opinion. And here I am. Here I am in the present. And one, as you say, Bhante, is suffering. To, to live in that kind of fantasy is a tremendous amount of suffering. Um, and to be able to live in what is called the wisdom of uncertainty. We don't actually know. We try, you, our thoughts, in many ways, are trying to make it so we can figure it all out, right? My teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to say, it's uncertain, isn't it? Don't you understand? It's uncertain. Somerset Maugham wrote, there are three rules for writing the great American novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. (laughs) So we want it all figured out that it's not going to, we'll know how it's going to unfold and it's not uncertain. But it is uncertain. And meditation teaches us that it's possible to rest in the reality of the present and not get so caught in the thoughts and ideas that we have. It's mysterious, this process of thought. Um, The Buddha said that we are five rivers. A river of senses, of physical sensations, smells and touches and tastes and sounds of physical senses that are always changing. A river of feelings that come and change all the time, pleasant and unpleasant feelings. A river of perceptions where we recognize and kind of perceive things in different ways. A river of thoughts. And then a river of consciousness that knows these experiences. And it's not that there shouldn't be thoughts or that there shouldn't be perceptions or feelings. Those are part of what makes up our experience, these five rivers. But when we try and hold on to certain thoughts, or when there are certain thoughts that lead us into, the, into a whirlpool of depression or anxiety or self-loathing or unworthiness or, or shame or, or anger, and they cycle again and again, when we get caught in those thoughts, we suffer rather than letting the river go by. So you sit in meditation and the, one of the first things that happens is you simply notice the rivers of sensations and feelings and thoughts um, and one of the things you notice about thought is that 95% of them are reruns. <laughs> you know, it's like you're stuck in an old, you know, late at night in a hotel room and all you can get are like the, the shopping channel or something like reruns over and over again. They're not new thoughts. It's like that cartoon I like to talk about, uh, this car driving across the vast desert in Utah and, you know, there's a roadside sign that says your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? It's kind of like that in meditation. And so you sit and you see the river of thoughts. Now, there's something paradoxical about this. Let's do a little practice for a moment, especially those of you who are new. Um, 
um, because the Buddha recommends that we understand thought, as, as Bhante is saying here, um, he says, with the mind to observe the mind. So we're going to sit for about a minute, and here is your task for this minute or so. I would like to invite you, when you close your eyes, to count your thoughts. Okay? And sometimes they'll be word thoughts, sometimes they'll be picture thoughts, sometimes... Um, uh, well, don't count the numbers, they're a thought, but that's like the cat chasing its tail. You're going to be like the cat at the mouse hole, and when the thought comes out, you just number it, oh, six, seven. They're sneaky. They'll come up and they'll say, there haven't been many thoughts yet, have there? Oh, whoops, five, right? Or, you know. So, anyway, just see a little experiment here. So let your eyes close gently, right? And for a minute, on your mark, get set, go ahead. So first question, if I might ask, is numbers. How many thoughts did you count? Anybody? Ten? Five? Fourteen? Twenty-five? Forty-one? Okay, does that mean that the person who had 41 thoughts had more than the person who had five? Maybe that person who had five just had longer thoughts, right? We don't even know. How many of you had picture thoughts with no words? So that's usually like 20-25%. Do you know that of yourself, that you're someone who thinks primarily in images? You probably do. Some people even have a kind of kinesthetic thought where they sort of think through their bodily feelings. Others have just word thoughts. Many of you will have the audio and visual portion together where you get the whole... Um, the most important thing in this practice is that you can realize that thoughts can be known with mindfulness in the same way that you can be aware of these words or the sights in front of you or of your body. We tend to get lost in and identified with our thoughts and believe them. But in that moment of counting, you could just see, oh, there's another thought. And so here's how the paradox begins. You start to see it, the first insight in insight meditation is called seeing the waterfall. You see the river of thoughts that throw, flow through, and they just keep flowing through. With the mind, you observe the mind. And often these repeated thoughts include unfinished business, regrets, you know, things that you wished, you sit, sit quietly, and the unfinished business of the heart comes. Things that you wish you'd done differently or you wish were different somehow. A man wrote to the IRS, I haven't been able to sleep knowing that I cheated on my taxes. Since I failed to fully disclose my earnings on my return, I've enclosed a cashier's check for $2,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. <laughs> so you sit, and the thoughts start to show you what bothers you, you know, what's unfinished, or your longings, or your plans, or your hopes, and your fears. And the mind has no shame, because it will repeat it over and over and over. Um, and kind of drill it into you, Hafiz, the poet writes, the mind is ever a tourist wanting to touch and buy new things, then toss them into an already filled closet. So the desiring mind is, oh, let's get this and this and this. And you start to see it, the 
the regret, the longing, the creativity, the planning, the hopes, and so forth. And with mindfulness, there's a kind of relief because you become bigger than your thoughts. It's not that you step outside of thoughts, but you become the space of awareness within which thoughts come and go, like waves on the ocean. You become the depths of the ocean. Mind creates both samsara and nirvana, said Kensi Rinpoche, yet there's not much to it. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind no longer has the power to deceive you. There's something that happens when you look directly at thought, you begin to realize, oh, that's just a thought. I'm no good or I'm fantastic. Both of those are actually thoughts of insecurity. They're just masquerading in different ways. Thinking you're, you talked about the comparing mind, thinking you're better or worse is just a new way of you know, trying to deal with the unknown of where you fit in the society. So you notice that and you say, okay, there's the comparing mind. And the minute you notice, you step from samsara to nirvana, from being caught, to saying, oh, that's just a thought. Oh, I judge too much. I shouldn't judge. I keep judging. I want to stop. Stop that judging. Judging is awful. I'm so damn judgmental. But what is that? Right? So all you can do is bow and you say, thank you for your opinion. That's a judgmental thought. Thank you. That's judging. Or there's the doubting mind. I can't do this. I can't meditate. Everybody else looks so quiet. You know, and I'm sitting here and I'm just full of thoughts. Oh, there's the doubting mind. Thank you. In the moment of awareness, there comes a freedom. This is a cartoon I got recently. It's a kind of a Zen birthday card. It shows a monk reading his Zen, Zen birthday card, and the card says on it, not thinking of you. <laughs> From Alan Watts, he writes, the art of living is neither careless drifting on the one hand nor fearful clinging on the other. That's clinging to the past and future. It comes in, consists in being completely sensitive to this moment, each moment, regarding each as new and unique and having the mind and heart open to what actually is receptive to now. And so what happens is that when we see the workings of the mind, it's not so much that we have to stop them, but we see it's just the river of thoughts. It's empty. It's like bubbles or streams or pictures on the television. You don't have to believe all the shows you watch. It's just, you know, photons on the screen um, in a silly arrangement. And instead, you can rest in awareness. Or another way to put it, you can rest in the heart instead of all those stories. You come back to rest in the space of the heart that says, yes, all these, but instead what Bhante read from the Dalai Lama, let me live my life from love, from care for myself and others, instead of all the stories. So that's the emptiness of thoughts, where you really learn to step out of. It doesn't mean they stop, but just as we sit here, you feel the space of awareness that doesn't have to believe the stories. And then the second part, which Bhante um, also pointed to, was that um, then you can use thought, because thought is a poor master but a good servant, as it said, and we need thoughts. And in the using, you can distinguish between what's skillful and unskillful, as you said, or, or in Buddhist psychology and other languages, what's unhealthy and what's healthy. Um, and you need both. You need to both let go of them and also pick them up, which is to say you need to remember your Buddha nature, this great, timeless, spacious awareness, and your zip code, you know, and your social security number. You need both. So the unhealthy thoughts are the ones that are connected with greed and revenge and self-hatred, that you know them, or the ones that lead to prejudice and racism and war and, you know, all the kinds of blaming of others and so forth. Um, or all your worries and anxiety about the economy and your relationship and, the, you know, the... The world, Ajahn Chah put it this way, he said, whatever the mind tells you, don't fall for it, right? It kind of, it's really seductive. And you say, okay, thank you, that's a worried thought, that's an anxious thought. You just name it in this beautiful way. The Dalai Lama says, have compassion for yourself and see which thoughts have your best interest at heart. Some of these visitors don't have your best interests at heart. Out of compassion, say, thank you for your opinion and show them the door. And then the healthy thoughts, 
Again, Ajahn Chah says, like sitting under a tree, um, you don't even have to climb it to collect the mangoes. They fall down. And with clarity, when you're still, when you rest in the heart, you can say, hmm, this is a beautiful, ripe mango. This is a rotten mango. You just pick up the ripe ones and you leave the rotten ones go. Um, and so these are the thoughts of contentment, of well-being, of generosity, as you said, of loving-kindness, of a natural connectedness with body and mind. And those thoughts you can begin to pay attention to and nourish and let them bring you back to your heart and back to your body. A few other words for the qualities that you, Bhante, Bhante um, um, Buddha Rakita, spoke of. When the Buddha speaks of thoughts of generosity, another word for tending these skillful thoughts of generosity is the word abundance. The poet Rumi says, walking out of the treasury building... I feel generous. Anyone still sober in this weather must be really mad, you know. Walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous. What he means is that when you quiet yourself a bit and step out of thoughts, come to rest in the space of the heart, you, there, there arises a kind of natural gratitude, not possessing things, because we don't possess stuff. You don't possess your car or your house. I mean, yes, you have payments and things like that, but actually you can't take it with you in the end, Right? You only rent it for a while, even what you think you own. You're in relationship with it. You don't possess people. Try it. They won't like it, really. They don't, they don't go for that, you know. But you can love them. You can, you can tend them and care for them. So real generosity is the innate sense that you belong here and a, a sense of connectedness and abundance and then, instead of holding on, you dance with the things of life. There's a beautiful kind of movement to say, yeah, it's not mine, it's life's, it's ours, and we share it. There was a story in the BBC of um, the siege of St. Petersburg, or Leningrad, during the Second World War. It was on, oh, maybe five years ago or so. Um, and they were interviewing people who'd been there in 1943, whatever year it was, 42, um, during the Second World War. And Leningrad was besieged for three years, this huge city, and I think half a million people died. And um, in the course of it, of course, people were you know, cold and hungry, and they interviewed this old Russian woman, and she said, yes, I was, I don't know, nine years old at that time, and um, talked about how terrible it was, and she said, and then one day, my mother sent me down to get our weekly ration of bread, to stand in line and get a ration of bread. And I went down, it was a really cold, rainy morning, and I got the bread and I walked out and I slipped on the ice and fell into this mud puddle with the bread and the bread got soaked in mud. And I just sat there and I wept. And then a woman who saw it was walking out of the door and came over to me and took her piece of bread and tore it in half and gave me half of her bread. And then this woman said, kind of led the BBC cameraman down the hallway of this long apartment into the kitchen and opened one cabinet and pulled out this porcelain <clears throat> bowl with a top, took the top off, and inside the bowl there was a, a kind of cloth. And she pulled out the piece of cloth and opened it. And there she pulled out a piece of that bread. And she said, this is what gave me hope. It wasn't a huge, enormous gift, you know, millions of dollars for something that some people might give. It was just a piece of bread. But the spirit of care in that and the thought behind it that we're sharing, we share the difficulties of life, what Oscar Wilde calls the tainted glory of humanity, the difficulties in the beauty and to give <clears throat> the thoughts that we might share are the most beautiful ones. And they come from a fullness, from an abundance which you have. And thoughts of metta are really thoughts of respect. One of my favorite stories in the Buddhist text, which um, Bhante must know, is about the Buddha's cousin Ananda, who was supposed to be a really loving being. And he was also the Buddha's attendant and kind of took care of him. And he was wandering one day um, in a village and came across a young woman who was an outcast, an untouchable. 
And in India at that time, castes were, even still in some parts of India, um, were among some of the worst kind of racism you could imagine, which is to say that you were not allowed to even have your shadow fall on the possessions or the food of of somebody who was higher caste. It was not just that you needed a separate drinking fountain, but if you walked past the other higher caste well, it would pollute the water and they might beat you or kill you. That's how you... Imagine how you would feel. And so Ananda, this elegant and wise monk, walks through the village and saw a young outcast woman, Pakati, and asked her, could I please have a drink of water? Monks are not allowed to ask for food. They go with their bowl silently, but the one thing they're allowed to ask for is water. And Pakati said, Oh, 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 venerable monk, I'm too lowly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask for this, lest your holiness be contaminated, because I am of such low caste. And Ananda replied, I ask not for your caste, but for water. And the woman's heart leapt joyfully, and she gave Ananda the water to drink, and he thanked her and went away, but she followed him at a distance. And hearing that Ananda was a disciple of the Buddha, she went to the Blessed One and said, Help me live in the place where your disciple Ananda dwells so that I may see him, for I have come to love Ananda. She fell in love with him. And the Blessed One understood the emotions of her heart and said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you have seen him practice toward you and practice it toward others. And Pakati, though you are born of low caste, you will be a model for the noblest of men and women of this land. Swerve not from the path of righteousness and loving kindness and you will outshine the royal glory of kings and queens. This is who you are, O nobly born says the Buddha. And so there is in the wise thought the quality of loving kindness. We might call it respect. Respect for everything. And there's this lovely haiku from the Zen poet Isa. He writes, don't worry, spiders. I keep house casually. Right? (laughs) Every little being is included and is respected in your thoughts. Or Gandhi, who says, even in my most difficult opponents, I am always looking for the slightest pretext to compromise. I'm looking for a way to connect. And if we look in our thoughts, not in a way to be right or to prove ourselves or so forth, but rather if we look in a way to embody the love that we care about, that ennobles us, then this is wise thought or skillful thought out of all those millions of thoughts and we can nourish it and we can choose it and when we wake up in the morning or as as, um, the poet Diane Ackerman writes, um, in the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, an architect of peace. And this is the kind of dedication that you spoke of in the morning, seeing the picture of the Dalai Lama and saying, what are the thoughts? And from that thought, what's the vision of possibility for this life? So, that was fun. (laughs) listening to you was totally delightful getting to talk you know speak of these things beautiful do you have any other reflections to uh, add Dante Uh, really I don't have anything to add thank you very much for this beautiful talk well thank you (laughs) thank you yeah (sighs) well we could take um, a few questions of any kind. We have a microphone, and I think with this larger group it would be good, Andy, if you would do that. And there's somebody here on, um, by the lamp post. Wait for the microphone, if you would, so other people can hear. Um, questions or reflections? You spoke of the wisdom of uncertainty. Yes. Could you uh, explain that a little bit? What makes you ask? 
<laughs> Usually there's some reason for asking. Please. Well, it... Uh, the it stock market, s- right. <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> I'm in a very uncertain place in my life mm. at the moment. Um, facing uh, uh, the future is very vague in my particular situation. And I wondered what, where because the wisdom your, is. Because your life is in... Some significant change. Yes. Retire. Yes, I, I've just lost my wife recently, mm. and uh, so that is uh, has caused me to um, look to the future. And I don't. I mean, I, when I look at the future, I don't know where where it's going. I don't know what's going to happen, uh, and I don't know uh, how to react to that. But uh, yeah, you you yeah. said that there's some wisdom in this, yes. and I believe there probably is. And I'm I'm trying to look at that. So, first of all, um, uh, when you say you've lost your wife, I really feel that. And my imagination, I don't know it's true, is that you had a, a good, long marriage, um, and so that it's, that was, that's a really big loss and a big change. Um, so, first, I just feel the respect for that, for that loss. Um, we live in a culture... And that looks to organize things in a certain... that looks for certainty a lot... And we're uncomfortable with uncertainty, um, even though that's actually our, our, our fate or, our, or the truth of it. Um, it's like we want to get to the resolution of the piece of music, and we're not very comfortable with the chords before it, you know, where there's those chords right before you come to an end. Oh, I want to get back to the, to the major chord that started the music where everything is okay again. Um, one of the things that meditation teaches... I think in quite a skillful way, is to feel the uncertainty of our life. In this case, you don't know how your life will unfold. Will you find another partner? Will you live where you are? Will you do something different? All of those big questions. And instead of trying to fill it up quickly um, with something new, grasping mostly because we're anxious, you relax into the uncertainty. This is the wisdom of uncertainty. And trust in a certain way, in a deep way, that it will unfold, that your knowing will come. And it might take a year uh, or two years of grieving, of looking around, of experimenting with new things, of taking a watercolor class or learning to hang glide or, you know, taking a trip somewhere or, or taking, you know, time alone or being in the mountains. I don't know what you will do. But taking time to listen deeply with not knowing and resting in the uncertainty so something new can grow up from underground. There's something that wants to come that won't come from your thinking about it, but will come from life itself bringing it to you if you're open to it. And that, in some way, is the, is the wisdom of uncertainty and the wisdom of being able to stay with things when they're shaky or difficult and relax into them rather than to try to immediately hold on. Something will come and it wants to get born in you and you can't hurry it. It's just like you can't open a flower by pulling on the petals, but with some water and sunlight, it's going to grow. And I believe that. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know if you have. I think uh, that's beautiful. What you have said is beautiful. Uh, I have so many things in my life which have been very, very uncertain. But when I rest, allow to rest in that place, as he said, life takes charge. Really, there's really life the way it has a schedule to keep, you know. But we, for us, we have to really figure out everything. We've done curriculums. We want answers to everything, you know. Beforehand, you know, we want all these things fixed. I was in Tibet. Um, there were some tourists. They always ask the, the, the tour guide, what if my, my, my hand break? What if... Uh, the, the car turns down. Then this guy, I'm the only tourist from Uganda, then he asked, these people from, they are, they're bothering me. They ask me this question, I cannot answer them. <laughs> because they want to be certain. That's how we have evolved. We want to have a, a very stable ground. We, when we go to an area where it's not stable, we are kind of discouraged. But allow life to be. That's how it unfolds. You know? It has its schedule to keep. You know? And so many things will evolve. I wasn't born a monk. Probably it's not a, it may be not apparent to you, but... <laughs> 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 but just ride life like waves, you know. <laughs> not drowning in them, but just on the top. And mindfulness and awareness brings you to that age where actually you can ride the waves and let life be. 
Not that we are helpless. We just go, oh, things are going to be like this. No. When we practice mindfulness and awareness and loving kindness and generosity and all these things, this practice brings us to that age where we can see ourselves things unfolding organically. You gave a good metaphor about pulling leaves. Mm -hmm. No, you can, you'll never prolong them and make them. Actually, that's why I wrote a book called Planting Dharma Seeds. It's called Planting Dharma Seeds. You are going to have it. I think we'll have a few copies there. I wrote this book. It's just, it was reflecting on my life, how things evolved. It's like planting a Dharma seed. A seed. Things evolve. All what you have to do is to nurture it. Put more water, fertilizers, uh, this kind of thing like that. But you cannot have a seed. I say, you know, within two days I want the, the fruits. Please, please. This is our planning. We want the seed to give fruits in, <laughs> before even we plant it, basically. <laughs> but can we put the seed there and rest, settle back in the present moment? That's what I'm, I can contribute. And, you know, what's it's lovely, Bhante, is you answered just now to a question I was going to ask you because people might well raise their hand and say, all right, it's one thing to be uncertain, but don't we need a plan? Don't we need a direct? Suppose you say, I want to study, um, you know, architecture or I want to learn um, to paint or something uh, or, or I want to build something beautiful. You need to think about it and plan and so forth. So it's not that... Um, being with uncertainty means that you can't direct yourself in a creative and a healthy way. But you answered it. You plant the seed of that. You direct yourself toward it, and then you tend it. But it's uncertain. You, anybody who's ever built anything knows that a million changes in things come up. You know, or anybody who's ever studied something, you start and it turns out if it's something that really is deep and important, that it takes you on a journey that has all kinds of unknown dimensions. So you can set your compass or your course in some way, and then you relax and say, all right, let me tend this and see how it unfolds. Is it, do I have it right? Yes. That's good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Other questions, comments, please? Wait for the microphone, if you would. Thank you. Uh, Jack, this is as thrilling an evening as I've ever had at Spirit Rock, and I've had quite a few, although not as many as many others. And uh, maybe I'm just ready for it, but I feel that you two are uh, of great clarity and, and sparkling uh, uh, wisdom coming forth. It's been just a lovely, lovely evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, I know he's sparkling. I can see it. Yeah. <laughs> he's sparkling. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, in the back, or right up here. Yeah, you've got start start up here. That would be fine. Please. So, so you start something. Uh, so you start something, and then you nurture it, mm. but. How do you know that you don't need to continue doing something in order to nurture it? I mean, when do you know when stepping back is enough as opposed to, uh, you know, okay, I need to now go on to the next step in nurturing this? So what are, what are you thinking about when you ask this? What, what makes you ask? Is it relationship or work? or Well, what, what's I, the... for me, it's actually it's uh, finding a job. Okay. You know, you start, you yeah. start the search. And you, you do things, you send out resumes and cover letters, and, and then you can step back, let's say, let's say I now said, all right, I, I did that, I planted uh -huh. the seeds, I sent things out, and now I just have to let things unfold. Well, what if someone is saying, well, wait a minute, I mean, you need to then continue sending resumes and cover letters until it works out for you. Um, and it's a it's a really beautiful question. It's an, and it's important one um, because the way that we're talking about is really an art. It's an inner art, you know. And um, you talked about you know um, swimming or maybe it's surfing or something like that. Um, it, you you can explain it to somebody, but actually you have to feel it inside. And so you can begin to pay attention. 
if you find in yourself, here you are in the situation, you're applying for jobs, you've done all this, and you feel like, I've done a lot, it would be good to take a little bit of a rest and see what comes back, you might have a sense that's actually a wise thing to do. Then after you rest for some days, you say, it's a really bad job market. Hardly anybody knows is getting jobs. I've did that, but I think it would be good if I continue to pursue this further. You have to listen. And there's a difference inside between um, commitment and clinging. If you're doing it and you're worried all the time and knowing is it going to happen and so forth, you suffer a lot from it. And so to be able to let go and say, I'll do the best I can and I'll see what will come. I'll keep, keep doing the best. That's really being committed to finding a job, but it's not the attachment and the clinging and the suffering. And that you have to feel in yourself. One of them is unskillful and it will, you know, you won't sleep and there'll be a lot of stress. And another is giving yourself to it, listening to the inner rhythm, no one can tell you, um, and giving yourself quite fully to it and doing the best you can. Uh, and to me, the art of meditation is learning to let yourself, the mind quiet and so forth, so you can feel the difference between stressing and adding and, and so forth. We all know how to do that, or what it means to let that go and still care for and still be committed. Um, and then you'll know how much to do. It's a kind of like tuning, the Buddha said, it's like tuning the strings of an instrument. You get the right amount of energy um, without a lot of tension and tightness. I think that's a very good input. Uh, what I found out is uh, in Buddhism, there's uh, what we call the four roads to success, four uh, ways of accomplishment. One is uh, wish to do, another one is energy, another one is thoughtfulness, another one is uh, examination. Uh, examination, or it would be Okay, examination or investigation. Why is the investigation? So, you do the planting of the seed. Actually, this applies in any life, whether it's Dharma life or uh, work or whatever. You put in your intention, which is a wish to do. That's one level of success. So, I did that one. I want to become a mom. But you don't stop there only. You go and follow up by the thoughts you keep on thinking about it. Otherwise, many things we think and they just pass, you know. So we don't even fall up because we, we lack the, 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 the one link to the, the four roads of accomplishment. So we, we do our best to think in a skillful way, of course. And then we put that in the energy. We need to put forth energy to do our resumes and all this and all this. And then we have to find out the examination, examine the process. Now there are, two, there are two, two things we have control over. Intention we have control over. Skillful, the way you execute your, whatever you are doing, you have control over that. But we don't, we don't have control over the results. We don't know what, uh, whether people are going to give us a job and there are reasons why they are not giving us a, uh, a job. But we have done our best. So there is a fine line between struggling and also uh, kind of uh, complacent. So we have to swim. I think I like that kind of middle way. You have to swim, and we have to learn from these things, you know. It's not, you cannot figure out your life, okay, now it's perfect. Everything, I'm going to work, I'm going to uh, write a resume, I'll get a job. No, life is not like that. It's like riding a bicycle. You put a lot of effort in the beginning, but once you run, learn how to ride a bicycle, it's not that you stop balancing, but there's a subtle, subtle balance that you continue to do. Any skill you learn, there's always continuity of these things. So, really, it's the way how life is, actually. Yeah. If you don't get it, you don't get it. Then you try other things. With those four areas I've spoken about. Thank you very much. I wish you luck in it as well. Maybe that will figure in. Who knows what your destiny is. Maybe you'll find some work that's quite unexpected. Um, part of the gift of meditation, and I, I feel so happy when we're able to come and sit together as we do on Monday nights, is that in a, in a culture which is really quite speedy, and if you get here from any other part of the world that's um, the, especially a kind of 
more indigenous culture or traditional culture, it's extraordinary how fast we're going and how much we're multitasking and how many things we're doing all at the same time in the course of a day and so forth. Um, to stop, just to sit and quiet the mind, open the heart, listen to the rhythm, as you say, the kind of investigation that starts to sense what's wise and what's skillful, to come back to ourselves is so helpful. Because then we can do what we do, and you do all these things, many of them very beautiful things, but you can do it from a place of wisdom and well-being rather than from a place of anxiety or clinging and so forth, which, cre- which makes a whole different way of living. And we need the quiet, we need the attention and the stillness to be able to find our way wisely. Um, otherwise, we just get caught and kind of tumbled around by the intensity and the speed of the culture. It's, it's such a balance to stop, to connect with yourself, to listen, to feel your breath and your body, and listen to your heart. Say, how are things? You know, If you only had a little while to live, if you only had another year or another whatever, um, you know, how would you want to live? What matters to you? And listening in that way, then the innate wisdom in you, the innate generosity, the innate respect, the innate compassion, that comes to the fore, the wisdom of the heart. Last words, Bhante, as we finish? Mm. Not really. I just wish you the best in your practice. And uh, really, really uh, take the practice to heart because it's so liberating. It uh, brings freedom, basically. Right from the time you start seeing it for yourself, you don't have really to uh, have a degree in metaphysics really to figure out the thing. It's really, it's available all the time. The guided meditation we had from Jack, it's just pr- be present with whatever happened. And the beauty of the practice is that you can see the results. And all, all the things, the problem actually we are thinking about, some of them, they, they never even happen, actually. It's just our projection in the future. <laughs> in fact, prior, a, a good half, they don't happen at all. <laughs> but we think, oh, when I do this, oh, well, how is it going to happen? How? So it's just too much. One time I was in, when I came from Tibet, uh, I went to Nepal. There's a Westerner asked one monk from Tibet, Tibetan monk, they say, oh, what about the planning to go this way and to planning, there's a lot of planning. The monk just looked at this Westerner. Hmm, a little planning, not too much. <laughs> there was a beauty in that. So because, we, you know, we do things in excess, I think. <laughs> so we need to moderate, to be contented. All these are qualities that we need to cultivate through our generosity, Really. So I wish you success in your practice and keep on planting the Dhamma seed and nurturing it. Thank you very much. May you be well, happy, and peaceful. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you. So let's end with a very simple chant and then we'll go out into the summer evening. And the chant is this. Um, In India, when you meet someone, the greeting commonly is to put your hands together and say, Namaste which means I honor the divine within you or I see who you really are, the, the spirit behind that costume of uh, body and clothing and so forth. Um, and the root of the word namaste in Pali or Sanskrit is the word namo. You began chanting with that this evening, which means to pay respects to or bow to. So what I'd like us to do is to chant namo nine times. And as you do, you can feel inwardly what it is that uh, you are called to bow to. And it might be bowing to something that was touched in you that's beautiful this evening that you remember in yourself. Or it might be bowing to a difficulty that just needs your respect. Oh, this is part of the, the hard part of the journey. Or it might be bowing to someone else whose care you carry in your heart or to some place in the world, um, wherever you're drawn to. But let us chant together um, this chant of of uh, namo of respect. Namo.
Blessings of a quiet mind and an open heart in the days and weeks that follow. Thank you. Thank you, Bunty. And drive politely out there, it's crowded. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.